we have stigmas within our community and um, outside of our community that we have to deal with. Um, when someone sees our child, uh, the first thing that they're going to notice, of course, is that our child is Black before anything else. And we know, of course, with what currently is going on in the world that, you know, b- being Black comes with a lot. So when they first see your child and that child is Black, those uh, preconceived biases come into play. Welcome to Tilt Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. I'm your host, Debbie Reber, and I have such a good conversation today for the show. My guest is therapist, coach, speaker, advocate, and author, Maria Davis-Pierre. Maria is the founder of Autism in Black, which aims to provide educational and advocacy services to Black parents who have a child on the spectrum as well as to bring awareness to autism and reduce the stigma associated with the diagnosis in the Black community. I first read about Maria in an article in Forbes magazine highlighting the additional fears and worries parents raising kids of color face when their kids also have special needs. Autism in Black was born out of Maria's personal journey of having to tirelessly advocate to ensure her daughter got the diagnosis she knew she needed at an early age. This is such an important topic, and we cover a lot of ground in our conversation. Maria delves into the stigmas Black parents face both within and outside the Black community, how and why she teaches parents to advocate not just for their children, but also for themselves, the difficulties Black children face in getting support in schools, the importance of cultural responsiveness from healthcare and social workers, and so much more. This is an episode everyone needs to hear and understand. I hope you get a lot out of it. Thanks so much. And now here is my conversation with Maria. Hey, Maria, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm so happy to have this conversation for the show. And I would love to actually start by hearing a little bit about your personal story and As part of that, I think this is probably very much wrapped into what you do, but your personal why for the work that you do in the world. Okay. So I am a licensed mental health counselor in Florida. And prior to having my daughter, uh, my niche was not anything autism related. Um, But then we had our oldest child and around six months, I started to notice things that would be um, characteristics of autism, but, you know, I just push it to the side, but then at 10 months, uh, my daughter started to show a lot more characteristics. So she started to actually regress in her speech. She she stopped saying words that she knew that she was saying prior to, you know, this point of regression. So at that point I knew, um, okay, we need to start getting the ball rolling on getting a diagnosis because early intervention matters, as we all know. Um, So we went to our pediatrician. Our pediatrician was like, oh, she was a preemie. Let's give her time. I had to tell the pediatrician, no, you know, we really want to make sure we get her diagnosis so we can make sure we're getting all the interventions that she may need. So we went to early step because she was younger than three. And, you know, when most parents go to early steps, it's like five healthcare professionals in there. Um, testing on different developmental milestones. So you have the um, developmental pediatrician, the OT, the SLP, 
um, and they're all testing her. And they were like, yes, you know, we do think she is autistic, but because she's not three, we don't want to give her an official diagnosis. But you can go to a pediatric neurologist and they can give the diagnosis. So after finding the one pediatric neurologist, we went there. He made us do DNA testing, tests that we would have already known by that time um, if she had the particular diagnosis he was looking for. But of course, they have to roll out. We did that. He was like, yeah, I do agree, but I also want to wait until she was three. So at that point, I was just extremely frustrated. And I told him, I'm just going to sit in your office every day (laughs) from open to close until you give me the diagnosis. He did not believe me. And I sat in the office for a week. Come Friday, he (laughs) handed me my paperwork. He was like, take your paperwork and go. So I did. (laughs) And yeah, I thought it was going to be easy street after that. You know, we had the diagnosis. Let's get these services rolling. But then what I noticed was that the healthcare professionals coming into our home never once took our culture into consideration. And they didn't ask us as parents how we were doing when we were spending the most time with her. And when talking to other parents, I saw that this was uh, a norm when talking to other Black parents. So, and then you're looking up stuff and you don't see anybody who looks like you. And it was a gap. So I said, you know what? I, I want to fill this gap. So I created Autism in Black. You created what you needed, which is how so many of us get into this work. But yeah. what a story. I, I'm wondering, you know, you were doing this work in some capacity before your daughter was born. What exactly were you were you doing? I'm just wondering how you, um, you know, this was on your radar. So you were obviously so clued in much earlier than many parents would be, right? Yes. So with being um, a licensed therapist, you know, I've worked with clients who were autistic. Um, I was heavily involved in working with what they categorize as at-risk youth. Um, So I worked in the school system and was a part of a lot of IEP meetings. Um, So I was uh, familiar with the world of IEP meetings, categorization, and students who had a diagnosis. So with my own daughter, when I started to see things like having adverse reactions to sensory things, the regression in speech, I I knew. And can I just ask about the DNA testing? Because I've never heard that mm-hmm. come up. What is that for specifically in the diagnostic process? Um, so he was looking thing, for things like a fragile X syndrome, those kind of medical issues, chromosomal issues is what he was looking for during the DNA testing. But of course, she was at that time one and a half. So we would have already known at that point if she had the diagnosis he was looking for with the, the DNA testing. Right. And so how many years ago was that? How old's your daughter now? She is eight now. Okay. And I would love for you to talk about Autism in Black when you started it and, and what, what you've created. Just tell us more about your organization and what you provide for families. Okay. So Autism in Black officially started in January of 2018. Prior to that, it was an add-on service to my other private practice, but it grew so large, I had to separate it. Um, and our mission with Autism in Black is to support Black parents through advocacy. So we do parent coaching, 
um, couples coaching, co-parenting sessions um, on how to help the parent either learn to advocate not only for the child, but themselves, um, help with the relationships, because we know that having a child with a diagnosis can impact you know, the relationship so much. So making sure they're on the same page. And then if it's in a co-parenting situation as well, getting them on the same page so they can do what's best for the child. We also do advocacy within the school system. So, you know, supporting the parent at an IEP meeting or um, reviewing an IEP to make sure that the goals are, you know, specifically for that child and customized to that child. And then on the other end, we do culturally responsive training for organizations, schools, um, healthcare professionals. So, okay, I'd love to hear more about everything really that you've touched upon, but I want to even start by if you could talk through what some of the challenges are, the unique differences in raising a Black autistic child versus a non-Black autistic child. Like, what is different within the Black community? So we have stigmas within our community and um, outside of our community that we have to deal with. Um, when someone sees our child, uh, the first thing that they're going to notice, of course, is that our child is Black before anything else. And we know, of course, with what currently is going on in the world that, you know, b- being Black comes with a lot. So when they first see your child and that child is Black, those uh, preconceived biases come into play. Um, there's things that like healthcare professionals don't even want to have conversations with black mothers, uh, because of the stigmas of being loud and aggressive and not intelligent, not knowing anything, looking for a check. So they don't even want to have conversations with black mothers about the child being potentially autistic. So of course that leads to a gap in getting the diagnosis. There's also issues within our community. Um, because we don't get the right information when it comes to autism. We get so much misinformation that when we say autism in the Black community, it's like a big, bad, scary monster because we don't get the right information. And then also thinking of it as another label because our our child is already Black, male or female, and then having to add in a, a disability or a diagnosis is very difficult when we already have to navigate the world so differently just because we're Black. Um, So those are a lot of the challenges because we don't get the same kind of grace as um, other communities do when having encounters with police officers or healthcare professionals or anything like that. We're seen by our race first. So those are a lot of the things that we have to first deal with. Then comes, you know, the disability. So it's the intersection of race and disability. Right. And I'm wondering for the families who come to your organization or seeking services from you, where are their biggest roadblocks? I imagine some of your work has got to be even just around helping them embrace or push for this diagnosis, you know, so there's that piece of it and then also the support piece. So I'm just wondering when they come to you, where do you find most of the need is for the families and parents that you serve? So a lot of them come to me at the stage of they're in in the school system and they're trying to get certain services for their child. Um, the categorization may be, you know, incorrect. Uh, you know, black children are widely misdiagnosed when it comes to 
the school categorization. It's not even a, a diagnosis in the school. So we're constantly placed in one of the behavior categorizations, the EBD categorization. So, you know, not even thinking that Black children can be autistic. So it starts a lot come to me in that aspect. But then there's also some who come at the early intervention phase where they're trying to um, embrace and accept that their child has a diagnosis and now what that means and how they have to to parent differently, especially when having generation um, living within the home that are trying to, you know, tell you how to parent your child. And it's quite different from what you actually have to do. So struggling with how to be um, respectful of your elders, but at the same time, knowing what you have to do uh, right for your child. So there, there's a lot of peeling back layers within our community. Yeah, I was going to ask about that, that intergenerational piece. And, you know, I've had other guests on the show who've talked about that being a real barrier for them to even seek therapy for their kids and feeling this strong need to have to convince close family members that this is what's going on. Can you talk a little bit more about that? And how do you actually help parents work through that? What what kind of advice do you give them in, in opening up that conversation? Uh, so it's it's very difficult in our communities because we are taught to respect our elders. Our elders know best because, you know, they've been here, done that. You know, that's what we hear. So when your your child is diagnosed and we don't have the right information and they're, you know, saying things like, oh, just give that baby time. You didn't talk to your six, you know, so that your child will be fine knowing that, you know, if I really wasn't talking till I was six, you probably should have taken me in to have a evaluation done, you know. So um, also in the black communities, religion is a big anchor piece. So when we're looking at religion and knowing that, one, we don't take our issues to anybody but God. We don't tell people our business, you know, so we don't we don't go to therapists to tell them, you know, what's going on in our home. We don't tell healthcare professionals what's going on in our home. We take it to God if there's an issue and we pray about it. Um, so knowing that all of these factors come into play, um, it, it is one working through church hurt, one working through realistically what they can do uh, within the family home. Um, for me, I was able to tell my family, either you're going to accept and get on board or we won't see you and talk to you anymore. That is an extreme. <laughs> but for me, I knew I could follow through. That is not what a lot of Black families can do because, you know, there's uh, child care, you know, watching, they live together, things like that. So it's what is realistic within your um, circumstances that you can do, having conversations. Um, sometimes I've had family sessions where we, you know, talk about it from the standpoint of what does it mean if you, as grandma, accept this diagnosis? What is holding you back from accepting this diagnosis? And a lot of it has to do with the label or what does it mean? Or, you know, I don't want people to treat my uh, grandchild differently when they're already going to be treated differently because they're Black. So a lot of the time, it's not even about the diagnosis itself. It's what comes with it. Yeah, that makes total sense. We'll be right back after this quick break. This year, I've been working on becoming more attuned to my body. And so I'm starting to really recognize how periodic spikes in anxiety or disruptions to my routines can seriously throw my whole system off. 
And as I've been traveling a ton this past month, which is both disruptive and somewhat stressful, I'm especially glad that I have the extra support of Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement from Ritual with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Symbiotic Plus provides fuel to the cells that make up the gut lining to support a healthy gut barrier. And it comes in this very cool minty delayed release capsule, which was specifically designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract for delivery to the colon. The bonus is that the capsules don't need to be refrigerated, so I can easily bring them with me in my carry-on. On a personal level, I love that Ritual is committed to sustainability. They're a female-founded B Corp, meaning they are holding themselves accountable long-term to not only think about their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for limited time at ritual.com slash tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash tilt for 25% off. So in our house these days, Darren and I have been working together to up-level our nutrition and healthy lifestyle habits. Maybe it's our age, our changing bodies, my shifting hormones, whatever the reason, I'm here for it. And that's why I'm loving Green Chef, a meal company that makes eating well easy with plans to fit every lifestyle. Green Chef offers gut-friendly recipes each week and is committed to providing a holistic approach to nutrition by offering meals that contribute to the overall well-being of your entire body. Darren and I are particularly big fans of their nutrient-dense, science-backed gut and brain health recipes, developed in partnership with registered dietitians that improve digestion, reduce bloat, and also boost energy and immunity. This week's favorites, turkey, black bean, and sweet potato chili, and the Baja chicken bowls with mango salsa. I mean, don't those sound delicious? But if that's not your thing, you can choose from a variety of customized meals to suit your lifestyles with preferences like keto, vegan, vegetarian, fast and fit, Mediterranean, gluten-free, and protein-packed. Whatever you choose, you'll get farm-fresh ingredients, organic whole fruits and veggies, and premium proteins, along with chef-crafted, nutritionist-approved recipes delivered straight to your door. Go to greenchef.com slash 60tilt and use code 60tilt to get 60% off plus 20% off your next two months. That's 60% off plus 20% off your next two months when you use the code 60TILT at greenchef.com slash 60TILT. Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. This idea of the label is so interesting to me. It's I've been thinking so much about language lately and the way that the words that we use when talking about our atypical kids, they carry so much weight and connotations. And that's some of the work that I'm personally trying to do is speak the words and the labels so they become more normalized. And I'm just wondering, what do you see in the Black community in terms of embracing different labels? Or or how do you see that vision of, of erasing the stigma moving forward? Um, I, I think it goes back again to the misinformation that our communities get um, when we say the word autism, a lot of families think intellectual disability, mm-hmm. you know, they don't know that it's not that can a child who is autistic have an intellectual disability. Yes, they can, but it's two different diagnoses. So one, it's about giving the correct information on what autism actually is and how it presents itself in their particular child 
because we know it's a spectrum and everybody is different. So giving the information is, is extremely important. And when it comes to, you know, the labels and things like that, I think a lot of people, when they look at the black community, think that, oh my gosh, they can't accept it. They can't accept it. And it's not that a lot of the times, a lot of times it is the, if I go ahead and give my child this uh, diagnosis on paper, then how are they going to be treated now? You know, again, being black and now autistic, what is going to happen to my child? How are they going to navigate the world? How are they going to be when they have to go to employment? So it's a lot of, is my child going to be able to do A, B, and C? You know, is my child going to be able to be independent? Is my child going to be able to go to college? So it's a lot of having to 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 understand what the diagnosis means for their particular child more so than, oh my God, I, I can't even fathom of my child having this um, diagnosis and I'm so shame, ashamed and embarrassed. It's not that, it's more of, oh my gosh, now that I have this Black child who has this diagnosis, how are they going to navigate the world? Well, and I also love you. You talked earlier about the fact that your your goal is to help parents not only advocate for their children, but to better advocate for themselves. And I would love if you could talk a little bit more about that. My community is aimed at parents. As much as our kids need so much support, I feel like the parents, it has to start with us. And so I'm wondering, how do you support parents in better advocating for their needs? Um, so for us in, in the Black community, one, it starts with knowing that the parent is also an expert. So we're taught in our community when it comes to doctors, lawyers, teachers, you know, they've went to school, they know their craft. So if in my instance, when my pediatrician said, no, let's give it time, more than likely a lot of uh, Black parents have been like, okay, because they see that person as the expert. And of course they know, you know, the medical side, but me pushing and, and going and sitting in an office for a week wouldn't be something that would be typical norm for the black community because we're taught to respect those in positions of power. So with me, it's about telling parents that they are the expert in their child. They know their child, you know, they're with their child, you know, more than most people are. So they know what's going on and to trust that gut and giving them uh, themselves permission to fire an expert, to get a second opinion and not feel guilty for that. And then on the other side, knowing that if there is a, a bit of apprehension around, you know, accepting the diagnosis, knowing the impact that it can have on the child. So why I don't rush parents to say, hey, you know, get on board and accept, I have to at the same time, let them know that the more time it takes, the more of an impact it has on their child. Um, so, you know, just letting them know the realities of uh, how important the parent is in regards to everything with their child, because they're the ones giving the permission, uh, you know, and signing consent. So knowing that they play an important role and as far as everything in their child, when they're under 18, you know, it, it's important for them to understand that and know that if they don't like something, then, you know, speak up and say it, uh, you know, with the professionals or don't feel that when you go to an IEP meeting, 
that, you know, there's 10 professionals over there and it's just you and you feel like you don't know anything. No, you are the expert. So it's more of empowering that parent. Yeah, it's so important that awareness that we are the experts. And it's so hard when this is just new landscape for most every parent who's confronted with this information. And yeah, that IEP meeting can be intimidating for anybody to be looking at these speech language pathologists and teachers and guidance counselors. And yeah, so I I love that reminder of helping parents own their expertise and their knowing they can trust their intuition about what they know about who their kid is. So you also talked about some of your work centering around helping people understand how to be culturally responsive when working with the Black disability community. So can you talk a little bit about what does it mean to be culturally responsive? What are you trying to help organizations and systems bring? Uh, So when therapists, healthcare professionals are working with children or clients in general, we're taught specific theories and interventions and, you know, this is how you do it, but we're not taught the cultural side of how those interventions work. So there may be some interventions that the Black community just is not going to fall for. Um, One of the theories I think about is uh, solution focus and the miracle question. And, you know, what if you woke up tomorrow and this and that, you know, a lot of people in the Black community like, you know, I'm not, that's not going to happen. So, you know, there's a reaction to that particular theory and intervention. Um, so a lot of uh, healthcare professionals come in and they're trying to just apply these interventions without first knowing the culture of that home and knowing if this is something that um, will particularly work. And then when it doesn't work, just saying that, oh, the family is resistant instead of looking at from the piece of maybe it's something that I'm doing as a professional and that I need to change to help the family, you know, taking our culture into consideration when you're coming into the home and understanding that there's such a long history of medical practices that have been done against us that make us a little leery. You know, when we hear the term social worker, we automatically think of somebody who is going to take our children. So, you know, not not seeing it as the parent being resistant, but the parent kind of filling you out and knowing what they can and can't tell you. You know, I'm a licensed clinician. And when therapists come into my home, I am myself leery of what I can and uh, what I do tell them. I'm like, you know, know, how are they going to use this information? Are they going to think that I'm hurting my child? Are they going to try to take my child away from me? So knowing the full history of what it means when you as a professional, especially if you're white, coming into the Black parent's home and what that means and how you should try to to navigate that and have those those culturally responsive conversations because at the end of the day, we cannot um, not know that we're Black. We can't go around the world and say, you know, we don't see color, you know, so when you come into the house and you're like, you know, I don't see color, this is, you know, what I'm I'm trying to, to help the family, help the family by having a culturally responsive conversation and acknowledging that because they're Black, there are systems in play that keep them from certain resources. So you have to bridge that gap. Are you finding that therapists and some of these systems are more interested in doing that work and just questioning their approaches and being more culturally sensitive? Like, are you seeing a shift happening? 
Yes, I have definitely seen uh, a shift since, um, you know, the the murder of George Floyd. Uh, so I've seen more companies reaching out to to get their organization trained with this culturally responsive training. So I am happy on that end that they are wanting to do the work, but it saddens me that it took till 2020 and this us being in a pandemic where we're sitting still to notice what's been happening for a long period of time in the black community. So, you know, it's, it's a sad, but happy. Right. I I was talking with my son about this, my son who's 15 now, and just this time in our history is, it's something people are going to be writing about in the future and talking about, and it's so painful, everything that's had to happen in order for things to meaningfully change. I mean, I'm I'm hoping that things are meaningfully changing. It feels that way to me as well. But it is incredible what what we've had to come to as a as a country, as a society to get to this point. Yeah, totally agree and it's um, you know, something we as a community, it's not new to us. You know, we've been dealing with, you know, seeing, you know, our brothers and sisters murdered um, right before our eyes. And, you know, I think that a lot of people don't take that into consideration, especially when dealing with our children and they're going into the, the school system and there is a police officer, an SRO officer, you know, and how that can be triggering for that child, you know. So I, I think there there's a lot of work that needs to still be done, especially when thinking about our children returning to the schools. Absolutely. We'll be right back after this quick break. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, the opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything. Because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone, our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this. The recently rebooted Differently Wired Club is on a brand new platform with its very own iOS and Android app. It is such a great space. However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. Join us today by going to tiltparenting.com slash club. That's tiltparenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside. Oh, hey, everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory, two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck. And now we're back with a whole new podcast about unsticking it, launching in January. What happens when life gets in the way of our creativity instead of nourishing it? We talk to all sorts of guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky, 
wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. So, join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Get out of there, life gunk. Let us help you get back to your best creative self. Look for Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Wherever you listen to podcasts, starting in January. Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Because sometimes life sucks. Unsticking It. I wanted to ask you about that, the school system as well. You know, what changes would you like to see? Like, what needs to change specifically to better support differently wired kids of color in the school system? Um, definitely needs uh, culturally responsive training for the staff, um, you know, the teachers, any of, uh, of the staff that's working in the school system to understand um, the systems that are at play when it comes to being a Black child with a disability. Um, understanding that culturally we respond different to a lot of things. So it might not be a particular behavior issue, but it's something that is accustomed to the situation that they live in. So, you know, we're looking at it from one lens of how they're reacting in the school and not looking at it from a systemic lens of what are they doing at home and what's happening at home and how is this impacting what's going on at school. Um, Also knowing that, you know, Black children are going to be coming back with at least one on the ACEs score, you know, because racism is now a part of the ACEs. So knowing that they're coming in with one particularly traumatizing thing, even though they probably have more. So knowing that they're going to be coming back traumatized, how do we best support their mental health needs? What do we need to be doing to address this? You know, also decolonizing the curriculum, having uh, a curriculum that shows us in more light of j- than just being slaves, you know. So anything else besides that, having true history of, of um, Black history, also knowing that when it comes to your SEL curriculum, that it is not culturally responsive, you know, and changing that within there. Um, knowing that evaluations are biased to Black children knowing that and taking those biases off and confronting your own biases before you're evaluating our children. Uh, so those are, are many things that, that can definitely be done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. So I would love to know what your big picture vision is. Like you launched a podcast this year. I saw your self-care affirmation journal, which I love. I'm huge into affirmations. And I thought that was wonderful. And you have a lot going on. And I feel like you've got big plans. So where do you want to go with Autism in Black? Uh, So uh, the Autism in Black book will be coming out at the end of the year, um, definitely giving a perspective that is different because we're not, you know, well represented within literature when it comes to the intersection of race and disability. So that will be coming out. There is a conference that is coming up. And our main mission is to bridge that gap with not getting the information to our community. So I try to have as many avenues of parents getting the information as possible, you know, so we can be more well-informed so that we can close the gap on our children having a one and a half year 
gap behind white children when coming when it comes to uh, diagnosis because we do know how uh, important early intervention is. Our children are getting diagnosed in elementary and middle school, and we all know at that age we've lost a lot of time. So we're trying to make sure that we're closing that gap, closing the school-to-prison pipeline. Um, So that is the main mission of Autism in Black, is having more more of the information getting to our communities. We're also, you know, COVID kind of messed up our plans, but we're... um, in the works of opening a wellness center where there'll be, you know, your developmental pediatrician, your OT, your SLP, your mental health therapist, all there working as a unit, as a team in regards to your child and their interventions and their, their medical diagnosis. So knowing that if I'm over here and I have my doctor over here and then I have to go all the way over here and have the therapist, they're more than likely not having conversations um, about what they're doing with my child. They're not talking to each other. Everybody is doing overlapping interventions. And it can be confusing for the child and the parents. So having everybody under one house makes it better. So um, we're trying to to get our wellness center open. I love that. That makes so much sense. What a cool thing it would be to have everyone on the same page about our kids. Yeah. And that, you know, it's not just for Black people. It's for you know, everyone, because when it comes to our kids, that is an important piece. We need to be working as a team because there's so much miscommunication and people doing two different interventions and then wondering why the child is confused. It's because nobody's talking and you're telling them to do two different things. Right. Right. So before we say goodbye, first of all, that's exciting about your book and congratulations. And uh, please keep us posted when that that comes out so we can support the launch of that. But could you let listeners know where they can find you on social media or check out your podcast and your website? Yes, you can go to www.autisminblack.org. And that has the podcast on there, as well as all of my social media information and how to work with me. I'm on Instagram a lot. And it's Autism in Black on there. And then on Facebook, it's Autism in BLK. And if you're wanting to uh, join the newsletter to get information on the book. You can go to include the excluded.com. Awesome. Is that the title of the book? Yes. Autism in Black, Include the Excluded. Awesome. All right. So listeners, I will have links to all of that in the show notes pages. So you can check out Maria's website and her awesome podcast and all the other goodies that we discussed today. And Maria, I just want to thank you so much. I'm so happy that I was reading an article in Forbes magazine, and which also is so cool to be in Forbes magazine. Congratulations. And and so I'm really happy to have found the work that you're doing. And thank you so much for sharing with us today. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. For the show notes for this episode, visit tiltparenting.com slash podcast and search for this conversation. If you like what you heard on today's episode, I would be grateful if you could take a minute to head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a review. Thank you so much for helping us stay visible so people who would benefit from the show can easily find it. If you want to support the show and help me cover the cost of production, please consider joining my Patreon campaign. To support the show, just visit patreon.com slash tilt Lastly, if you aren't already part of the online community at Tilt, I invite you to sign up at tiltparenting.com on the box in the bottom where it says join the revolution. 
Every Thursday, I send out a short email with a quick note from me, a link to that week's podcast episode, and links to five stories from the news that week that are relevant to parents like us. Again, you can sign up and learn more about Tilt at www.tiltparenting.com. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, whew, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us.